have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12, will be in verse 35 and following. This is the climax of the confrontations with Jesus and the religious leaders. While there were exceptions to their opposition of Jesus, as we saw in verses 28 to 34 last week, it does become clear in these final scenes that, or this final scene that, The religious leadership as a whole were stubborn and resistant to God's purpose and God's kingdom in Christ. Jesus' answer to the scribe back in verses 28 to 34 had completely silenced his opponents. From this point on, Mark says, no one even dared to ask him any more questions. So if they think they'll be able to get Jesus out of the way by discrediting him, by trapping him in his words, they're sadly mistaken. They're going to have to come up with another way to get rid of him. Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, unfortunately, and tragically will provide this for them in just a few more chapters. But in the last verses of chapter 12, Jesus not only goes on the offensive here, asking his own question to them, but he gives a very grave warning to the scribes in particular. He ends up indicting all the religious leadership of Israel through this example of a very poor widow's offering. One of the least of these in Israel. She provides the example of precisely what the religious leadership should have been and was not. Should have done and had not. This is what the religious leaders were missing. What she shows us here. By disobeying the greatest commandment, they were guilty of committing the greatest sin. While one who has nothing literally gives everything To her Lord. Just before, very strategically placed by Mark, just before Jesus gives his life, his very life on the cross in Mark, you have an impoverished widow giving everything that she had to God. In the disobedience of the religious leadership, we see our sinfulness. We are learning the root of why we disobey God and sin against Him. But in the obedience of a widow, who is preparing us in her actions for those of Jesus Christ himself, we are learning the foundation of the hope of sinners for salvation. It is love for God that holds the key to healing us and to healing our world. Our world is the way it is because we don't love God with all our heart, all our soul and mind and strength as we're commanded to. And as a result, we don't love our neighbors, much less our enemies. Even the turmoil in our own lives often results from living out of order this way. We need a substitute. We need rescued. We need a savior. Jesus didn't come how to tell us or didn't come to tell us how to fix everything. He came to deliver us from everything. Because he loved God more than anyone or anything, Jesus Christ gave all that he had. So that sinners who have nothing to offer God might gain everything through his salvation. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word, for your spirit who reveals it to our hearts. God, I ask that you would watch over my mind and my mouth for the sake of your name and your people and those you mean to draw to yourself. Watch over all those who hear. We ask you to open every ear and mind to hear and understand and believe your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
beginning at verse 35. Mark writes, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So after silencing his critics, Jesus goes on the offensive with this interrogation of sorts of his own. He attacks their theology. He goes after their misinterpretation of Scripture. He's probably addressing the whole crowd, but the scribes are present. That's the group he brings up. He asks about their view specifically of the Messiah. Why have the most learned among you, the most devoted to interpretation of Scripture, why have they concluded that the Messiah is the son of David, like merely his descendant, right? One that comes later than him. Most people in this crowd, especially the scribes, would have been aware of Old Testament texts that indicated the Messiah would come from the line of David, Israel's most renowned king, the shepherd, the poet, the, 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 poet, the warrior, the brilliant administrator, the one who extended the borders of the nation of Israel, the greatest military genius in their history. He had the greatest public work system or program of any king who ruled over the Jewish people. The, Druze, the Jewish people regarded David's reign as the golden age of Israel. That was the best it had ever been. It was supreme under him. When he died, the kingdom passed to his son Solomon. And despite his great wisdom, and as uh, Sproul says, often because of his great foolishness, the glory of Israel, the golden age of Israel, became tarnished. The kingdom was divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the golden age of Israel ended. The corruption infected every part of the monarchy and the nation. The further they uh, removed from David, Israel became. There was a longing for the golden years of David's reign that was growing in the hearts of the people. God gave the promise that the house of David would be restored. The Davidic dynasty uh, dynasty would last forever. So Jewish people placed all their hope on this coming Messiah because he was a descendant of David. He would be the warrior, the poet, the shepherd, all of these things. They're expecting a great king to come from his line. They're expecting one of David's sons to be this king. So Jesus asks, the scribes reasoning for teaching that the Messiah would come from David's line here in verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can the scribes say that the Messiah is subordinate to David? That's what he's asking. That's what they taught. David was at the top of the food chain. The Messiah would answer to him. The question, again, it seems like it could be answered very easily by citing any number of Old Testament passages. But Jesus adds a qualification what appears to be a contradiction to this idea that the Messiah would be one of David's descendants from Psalm 110, verse 1, here in verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's not how a son would talk to a father. That's not how a descendant would talk to a progenitor. So, Jesus poses this obvious question arising from that statement from Psalm 110.1 about the Messiah. Jesus is going deeper than they have gone and he's asking this question. David himself calls the Messiah Lord. How then is the Messiah David's son? How is the Messiah subordinate to David? And notice the question isn't answered by Jesus. He leaves it there. It shows what Jesus is saying shows that the Messiah is much more 
than the traditional normal expectations about him in Israel. He's not just merely one of David's descendants. He is that, but he's much more than that. Psalm 110 puts the Messiah, this Davidic king, in the position of God's vice regent, ruling at God's side over everything. Verse 36 is upside down then, quoting Psalm 110.1, is upside down unless somehow the descendant of David has greater status than David. That's not, again, especially in Jewish culture, that's not the way it works with descendants. A descendant would not call the father Lord. Sons don't have greater status than fathers. So Jesus is asking, what do you believe about the Messiah? Who do you think he is? What do you think he's coming to do? Does he answer to David? How can the great David say that one of his descendants is greater than he is? Who's greater than David? His point here is that the scribes have missed something very important in their interpretation of these scriptures. And of course they had. Remember back in verse 24, the religious leaders in Israel were finding all of them know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, regardless of how much they studied and they studied their study would put our study to shame. The Messiah is way more than simply a kind of new David or an heir to David's throne, a realized David. This more than the traditional view of what the Messiah would have been. The Messiah is actually the son of God himself. And think about it in Mark's gospel. What does a Gentile centurion at the side of Jesus at Calvary say about him in response to this? Truly, this man was the son of God. In 1539, he is the Son of God and therefore the Lord of all. They have missed Jesus then, first of all, because they don't interpret Scripture correctly. And Jesus viewed Scripture as that which was breathed into the heart of the human writers by the very Spirit of God Himself. That's what you see in verse 36. That's how Scripture was written by the Holy Spirit. It was authoritative. Scripture is and was authoritative for that reason. These are the words of God over Israel, over us, for this very same reason. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted no less than 33 times in the New Testament. The New Testament writers then clearly understood how important Psalm 110 was for identifying and knowing the Messiah properly. Yahweh, the Lord, said to David's descendant, whoever this Messiah is, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Yahweh calls the Messiah Adonai, calls him Lord. Who is David's Adonai? That's what's at issue here, because Yahweh told him to be seated at the place of highest authority in the universe, the right hand of God Himself, which is where Jesus ascended to, specifically when his work on earth was finished. Psalm 110 is looking to the ascension of Jesus following his life, death, and resurrection on the earth. So in verse 37, the question remains, how can David call his descendant, the Messiah, the Messiah greater than himself? Because the Messiah is the Lord himself. The Messiah is greater than David. The Messiah is the Son of God. In human flesh. They had missed this, first of all, because they didn't know the Scriptures at all. They lacked faith in Jesus when He came. We learn in Luke that the Scripture cannot be understood properly until Jesus opens it 
to us. And so rather than waiting for the one who had the authority to come and do that, they have gotten their own idea that the Messiah is just going to be like the, the you know, a renewed David who's going to return Israel to prominence and glory. And so they've completely missed him. Their desire for the Messiah to serve their national and personal wishes caused them to miss him when he actually arrived and not just miss him, murder him. That's how valuable these desires were to the religious leaders. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's not just a Bible lesson. Jesus is revealing the root of the problem in the religious leadership of Israel. The second reason they reject Jesus as the Messiah, the first being they don't understand Scripture properly. The second reason, the underlying reason, the foundational one of the first, they reject Jesus as Messiah because of what they do love. Which is what Jesus attacks now in verses 38 to 40, speaking of the scribes in particular. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. What an indictment. They will receive the greater condemnation, not like somebody committing a much more heinous sin. No, no, no. Because of verses 39, 38 to 40, they, the scribes that do this, will receive the greater condemnation from God. The scribes in particular are on Jesus' hit list here. I wonder why that is. He reserves this warning for them, for those who interpreted Scripture for Israel. With that task, that duty, he criticizes four examples of their pride. Just four. And all of them are related to their love of their social status. And the love of their position and what it provided for them. Do you see here what Jesus is doing in posing this question on the heels of answering the question himself? What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment revolves around love for God and love for neighbor. What do the scribes love? That's what Jesus is saying. They're telling you to obey the greatest commandment. They don't do it. This is what they love. This is why they're wrong. This is why they reject me. This is why they misinterpret Scripture. He's reversing the question of the scribe in verses 28 to 34 here. So what do you men love with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Are you following the greatest commandment? No, you're not. Why not? What's keeping you from doing it? Is it that it's too hard? Yes, but that's not why they... That would not be why they, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say it's too hard to follow. They believe they followed it. But Jesus goes after the core of their love in context here. What does serve their desires? What do they love because it does give them what they want? It was customary for Jews to wear prayer shawls when reciting prayers. The scribes had ones, though, that were so long they touched the ground. They rubbed on the ground in verse 38. They had ornate tassels on them. At the bottom that are on their ends showing their elevated status. So they're, they're walking around dressed in such a way all the time saying to people, we, we really pray though. We know you pray, but we really pray. We really take it seriously. They, if they had Facebook, they would have posted things like, so thankful I had the time today to pray for four hours. Right? Just so thankful to God. Just wanted to let you guys know how 
devoted to God I am, hashtag thankful, hashtag blessed, right? Hashtag so thankful, hashtag meditation, hashtag serious, right? They like or love greetings in the marketplaces, right? It's customary, it was customary for Jews to rise in the presence of dignified scholars. They, they loved this when it happened. They walked in the room, people would rise for them. They also loved having the best seats in the synagogues. The best seats in the synagogues were either benches along the sides that were reserved for them or special seats up front while the common people had to come in and sit on the ground. So they loved this this recognition. And we're learning here how easy it is to fall prey to what recognition can give you. The the, the fact that people would rise in your honor, that I, I, I personally don't, I know some people do, and it's okay. I I, my name is Tony. My name is not Pastor. Right? So you don't have to do that if you don't want to. You can. I understand it. If that's what you're teaching your children, I don't override that. I'm simply saying that that, that lends itself in the human heart to pride. I have a special title. Right? I have a, when I walk into a room, I'm, I'm speaking of the rhetorical eye. But what it does to your ego, what it does for you when you walk into a room and people rise for you, people defer to you all the time. You just, it's, it's unavoidable what that will do to your flesh. You can fall in love with that recognition and become so serious about it and crave it so much, you would crucify a man for threatening it. That's what we do. They love the best seats in the synagogues. Jesus also says they love the places of honor at feasts. Feasts or banquets. Banquets were um, rituals of social status. In, first century, in the first century, the best seats, the best food were given to honored guests. Which Very interestingly, remember Jesus in Luke 14, 7 through 11, he encouraged his followers or those who would follow him not to seek out the best seats when they go to these banquets. But the scribes loved being scribes. What they loved was the honor and respect and praise and recognition that their position gave to them. We don't realize how deadly of a thing this is to our souls, to our families, to our loved ones, to our world. To love honor, to love praise, to love recognition, pride. To love oneself. Jesus doesn't think this is harmless or secondary, Jesus doesn't say, well, it's, it's just natural, that's kind of the way it is, nor is it acceptable, right? It's not acceptable for men to love these things and behave this way. He calls this out as indicative of their evil, indicative of why they are going to murder him, and indicative of the fact that they are committing the greatest sin by disobeying the greatest commandment. They do not love God. They do not love neighbor. They love themselves. Because the root of this self-love comes out in even more sinister ways than wanting to be recognized. In verse 40, these men devour widows' houses. And while doing it for a pretense, make long prayers. The scripture teaches all throughout that God has special care for widows and orphans, the most vulnerable people among the Jews, the most dependent and therefore the most easily exploited. And to their shame, the scribes would go to vulnerable widows and basically, I'm quoting one of the things I read here, built them out of whatever savings they had. They would use their position to get in with widows 
and take their inheritances and take their money in exchange for religious services. Then they disguised hypocrisy and cruelty like this by making long prayers in public. What's the connection there? Because those two things in the sentence go together. One follows the other. They wanted to appear so religious and so righteous and so pure that no one would ever suspect them of such sinister, evil, cruel actions. They wanted it to be said of them if someone accused them, oh, they would never do that. Right? That's why we put up front sometimes, so that when that does come out, and it always comes out, oh, they would never do that. They would never do Why would we as human beings believe another human being is incapable of evil? Why? Even the worst, harshest kinds. Why would we buy into this? Because we don't believe yet that we need Jesus as much as Jesus thinks we do. We don't realize how wicked we are. We don't realize that love of self by getting praise can result in murder. That's how serious people are about it. If you're going to out me, I'll kill you. Right? They didn't do this out of honor for God. That's not why they prayed long prayers. They prayed long prayers so their piety could be seen by people. This is deadly. Some people just want to be recognized for their position. It doesn't matter if they actually fulfill what the position calls them to do. As long as they get the accolades that come with it, because they can look a certain way or do something, and people will look at them and say, oh, they're really important. To fall in love with that is deadly. It's cancerous. It destroys people. It dishonors God, most of all, most important of all. Beefing up their reputations so that people would think highly of them was everything these men were about. Again, it's a horrible indictment Jesus makes. And look again at the warning. They will receive the greater condemnation in verse 40. Those entrusted with the truths of God and teaching them to others fall under harsher judgment for their error and mistreatment of God's people, especially those who are more vulnerable. Beloved, greater condemnation for this? How seriously does God take this sort of thing? Now to counter this and to show what true devotion to God looks like, this is not an episode pulled out of thin air that Mark remembered. It has a context. Where does Jesus go to show his disciples this is what I'm talking about? This is what honor for God in this world looks like. He goes to a widow. To one devoured by men, but in the sight of God, precious. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. A lepta, I believe. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. That That is a moral evaluation of what she did. Because mathematically, it's not accurate, right? Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For, so here's why, here's how Jesus' math is correct. They all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, all of it. This is her last money. 
and she's giving it. The treasury that the text was talking about was made up of 13 different receptacles for donations or alms. It was located in the temple court of the women. It was called the court of the women. Um, not just not meaning that only women could enter the court, but that their women could also enter the court as well. Anyone could make their donations there. The practice of uh, giving gifts to God's sanctuary was established in the days and weeks and months following God's uh, deliverance of his people Israel from Egypt. He commanded the people to bring gifts to be used in the construction of the tabernacle, the first sanctuary in Exodus 25, 1 through 8. Later, instructions for tithing were given in Israel as they were an agrarian society, so their tithes were grain, new wine, oil, the firstborn of herds and flocks, and all these things in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29. These funds were also regularly used to help foreigners, orphans, and widows. In Deuteronomy 26, 12, in the time of Jesus's, or in the time of Jesus, these donations were brought to the temple. In fact, so much was given and distributed here that the temple was like the central bank of the nation. The person who administered the temple treasury was one of the most important officials in all of Israel. Jesus sat in the court of the women, witnessing people making very large donations to the temple treasury, and they did not impress him. They didn't impress him. It is amazing, especially in light of clear texts like this, and terrifying how much people really think God is impressed with the size of their gift. People really think they're buying stock in the kingdom when they give, and they're part shareholders and owners of a company. You don't know how much I've given. You don't know how much I do. Right? Then what do you love? Why are you giving it? What impressed Jesus, what impressed David's Lord was the gift of this widow, which is basically two mites here called two small copper coins. This is one thirty second of a denarius, a day's wage for a laborer. We say that's nothing. It isn't. Look at forty three. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the most famous donation in history. And it's the, maybe the smallest one. In history, Jesus had to show the difference to his disciples. Here is the difference between those who serve God with hypocrisy, serve him so that others might see, serve them because what they love is themselves, and those who serve God with true spiritual devotion. If you love yourself, you aren't giving away your last money, especially when you're already poor. God is not honored by the size of a gift, but by the posture of the heart that gives it. We feed the opposite of this in the way that we think and in what we often present. We don't make much of people that don't give a lot. We don't. Completely the opposite of the way of Christ. You give enough, you might get something named after you. Right? In the church... You give enough and you might be able to become a deacon or something. You give enough, maybe you can be an elder. 
You give enough. You, you can walk into church and just kind of, you don't have to really be involved at all. You can just sit there and say, the way I'm involved is I just give a ton of money. And then I'll, I'll you know, I, I won't be a part of the body at all. I won't take part in discipleship or encouragement or bearing one another's burdens or doing any of those things. But I'll criticize the way everybody else does it. Right. I'll criticize the way everybody else does it. And if you don't do what I want, I'll, I'll pull my money out. Right. I don't want any responsibility. I just want authority because I give and we feed this and we recognize it. We, we don't tell testimonies of people that have nothing because we, we, we can lure people into giving more money if we bring up the people that made more money by giving money. Right. God isn't honored by the size of a gift. He's honored by the posture of the heart that gives it. We can only truly give to God when we recognize that what we're giving does not put God or anyone else in our debt. It's not a means to show others how much we honor God, how seriously we take Him. That's just another way of walking around in long robes and loving the best seats at feasts and in the synagogues. Unlike the Pharisees, we're not trying to impress God with what we're doing. We're not trying to impress others with what we're doing. We don't care whether or not anybody knows it when we honor God. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. But like the widow, we want to trust Him enough to become entirely dependent on Him for everything. That's what she's doing. God will take care of me. I love Him. Beloved, Jesus declares here that instead of caring for Israel, the religious leadership has plundered Israel. Where is the help for this woman? Where is the help for her? Why is she not being cared for? Why is she in this position? To support the temple that gave these men their positions, this poor widow had given all she had to live on. The wealthy were giving out of their abundance. It's not that they're sinning. It's just that for them, giving is Another thing you do, right? It's just what you do. This poor widow is giving out of her poverty. Jesus says in doing so, she literally gives more. In other words, Jesus Christ doesn't value money. This is how God's balance sheet works. Jesus could add, he knew that mathematically she was not giving more, but that's not how he counts He saw in her heart true devotion to God in that giving, in that moment. It was because she loved God that she put in all she had, her whole livelihood. Jesus is saying that it isn't the religious leadership that exemplifies the true devotion to God of which he is worthy and that he requires, as the greatest commandment makes clear. It was a poor widow who loved God with all that she was and all that she had. In the greatest commandment, God is not commanding us to give him what we have so much. What value is it to him? Right? There's a great meme that makes its way onto social media sometimes that shows a person handing their heart to God and says, this is all I have to give you. And the painting of God is going, ew, that's perfect. That's perfect. We just, I, I, I give you, I, no, 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 no. What is that? What is that? Obviously, the amount here has nothing to do with Jesus' reaction to it. 
we honestly think we put God in our debt by serving him, by loving him, by giving to him, which is why when the floor gets ripped out from underneath us, we get mad at God and think he's abandoned us and don't understand him. We're believing promises that we put on his lips. If I do this for you, you'll do this for me. So then it doesn't matter if you're sincere in your devotion to God, right? It doesn't matter then if that's the way we look at him. You just have to do the right things. You don't have to feel anything. And then we find out, according to the Bible, we can't possibly feel what we're commanded to feel. In the greatest commandment, God is not commanding us to give him what we have. In reality, he's commanding us to give him what we don't have and can't, therefore, give. If love for God, we talked about it last week, is just a greater amount of emotion and pathos for him than we have for other people, then Jesus died for no reason. Because then all my job would be is to get you to rededicate your life over and over again and take God more seriously and put God first and all those silly phrases we can't quantify, but we say them because they sound pious. What do we tell people? If you put God first, everything in your life will work out. I've never met anybody who put God first. So where do you sign up for that? Where do you sign up for if you go about it the right way? Everything's cake. Your marriage is easy. Your kids are great. The job never fails. Friends never fail you. Everything goes well. Look at our country. Look at it. Dying. We're here. Nobody's been following God. Nobody's been devoted to him. Beloved, according to Jesus, it's more likely that there are poor widows 50 million times more devoted to him all over the place than there are of people just sold out to him wholesale as a church. So why isn't the country awesome? Why isn't God blessing? Do we really think upon reading this that it's the fault of like the immoral people? They just put everything on them. If you guys would straighten up, the country would be blessed. Is that the way of Jesus? Is it? Are we sure that's the way it works? Are we sure? We don't have what God requires. Right? The widow is exemplifying this. God is worthy of every cent. Every cent on planet earth. It's not enough. He's just worthy of it. Right? Love has no monetary value. We can't put a price on it. And that's what God commands. That's what Jesus is after here. Right? Messiah, who is the Son of God, dying for us, is what John tells us later in 1 John 4, that love actually is. We imitate the giving of our lives, not because salvation is transactional, but because we imitate Christ who came to save sinners. To do that, He gave everything he had to live on, even his own life. That's why we do it. We're not paying God now. No, 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 no. We're imitating Christ now. The salvation piece has been addressed. 
She exemplified honor for God when, as the bankrupt one, she gave everything. It was the one who knew she had nothing that honored God by giving it to him. She knew it wasn't a lot. She knew this. And we can't say too much about her because the text really doesn't do that. Jesus, the moral evaluation of it is implied here. He's saying she's giving more. She's not the example par excellence. The the point of the text is now do what the widow did. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. She's just a picture in that moment of what Jesus is talking about. But you don't get saved by being like the widow. Don't think today that if you write a check that clears out your savings, you get entrance into heaven. Right? That, or that you have life abundant on earth with Jesus. That's not how it works. By giving God what she didn't have. She did not have this to give. If she gives this, she has literally nothing. Jesus is emphatic about that twice in verse 44. She gave him then that which truly honors him. All she had to live on and out of her poverty. Why do the religious leaders of Israel disobey the greatest commandment? Why are they so far from God? They love themselves, not God. And what do they do as a result of that? They exploit their neighbors, even the weakest and most impoverished and vulnerable among them. Imagine if they love their neighbors like they love themselves. Do you see why that's in the commandment? Because this is how much people love themselves. If you love people as much as we, if we love people as much as we love what we love in verses 38 through 40, there wouldn't be poor widows. And how do we know that will never happen? Because what did Jesus say? The poor you will always have with you. So we will always be in need of a Savior who gives enough to cover my lack. And these men don't realize that. They don't care about that. They don't see any lack. And it's not just widows that are dishonored and devoured. But beloved, it's God Himself who is worthy of all worship and honor and glory and power and praise that is dishonored in every wayward attitude of the heart that we possess. There isn't a moment in our day when we are actually giving to God what He is worthy of. I always need Christ to be my advocate before the Father. Knowing that tempers my heart, is meant to temper my heart so that I don't become like this. That in my lack of love for God, I am constantly realizing how much I should love Him, and therefore I don't have time to devour other people, dishonor God, or worry about whether or not other people are dishonoring God. The widow's devotion to God had nothing to do with who saw it. That's what made her worship so pure. That's what made that act here exemplary. Jesus indicts the religious leadership as guilty of plundering Israel and dishonoring God because they were in love with themselves. He outs them as petty, beloved. And you know the way this story goes. I I assume most, if not all of us, know how this story goes. They're going to murder him. He revealed their sin as just plain old schoolyard Selfish, 
Self-absorption. And because they were in love with themselves, they didn't know Scripture properly, up to and including completely missing who Scripture said the Messiah would be. This is what leads them to not just be hypocrites and showmen, but again, to be murderers of the Messiah and Son of David, who is clearly David's Lord, who is also the Lord and Son of God. Beloved, what makes the widow's example so powerful is not, again, I want to stress this, it's not that she's showing us how to live or how to give. That's not really what I think is happening here. If, if, if we could simply decide to do that, okay, I need to give more then. See, do you see how that, how we make a text about us? How we do exactly what they had done with the text of Psalm 110 about the Messiah? He's coming to serve us. He's coming to make us great, right? We see this and think, oh, okay, so the key to being honored by God is to give more. No, 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 no. It, it, it needs to hurt when I give or I'm not really giving. No, 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 no. That, that is not here in the text. I think that's taking the text too far. If we could simply decide to do that, then there's, again, there's no need for Jesus to go to the cross if we are capable of doing what God commands. Jesus goes to the cross because we disobeyed what God commands, not because we just needed a little tweak and then we could follow it. Then come down and give the tweak and leave. Don't get murdered. No, we realize how serious our sin is, how depraved we are, how utterly helpless we are and hopeless when for this he's murdered. The Son of God, the Messiah. You have the audacity to murder the one David called Lord? You think David would want anything to do with you, people? He's saying to the scribes, we know what we need, what we need to do from her example. That's clear. right? I'm not telling you not to give more. I'm not your Holy Spirit. But that's not the point of this passage. We... we we know what we need to do. All, all of us know we need to do more. That's, that's a, preaching like that is a fastball across the center of the plate at about 65 miles per hour for Barry Bonds. Uh, you're not doing this. Do more of it. Uh, be more serious. Be more committed. Uh, pray more. Read your Bible more. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then, what if people read their Bible a lot? Then what do you preach? Uh, read it a lot more. And do a lot more. And we're going to create this thing that you have to do. And if you don't do that, you know, and then you get the, the, the building funds. You, you live in your paneled houses and look at the church. The roof is crumbling. and no, Just give money. Give, give, give. You know, that's right. nothing to do with Jesus. That's not why she's here, first and foremost, to show us what to do. But to show us what Jesus is going to do. This is a prelude. His offering is the greatest offering, and it's the only offering that can actually give God what God is due. Who else's life could be given for God but God's? Right? Who else's life has the worth of Jesus? What did He give when He died to His Father? What God requires must be done for us and credited to our account. That is what we mean when we say we're saved. 
were saved from the wrath we deserve for not being able or willing to give God that which He is worthy of. What God requires must be done for us and credited to our account by grace working through faith. To believe in Jesus for your salvation is to agree that you need this. I need Him to be my forgiveness and my righteousness. And that is what He is going to do for us. The widow's example won't save you. The widow's example will only point out our flaws. When Jesus gives His offering, what will save us has been given. All we need to do is trust in Him. Right? The one who is worthy of everything, all our worship, all our praise, all our devotion, all our money, all our love, rather than using this to serve himself, gave not just all he had to live on, he gave his very life itself again. He didn't need to devour widows' houses. Do you see? Jesus didn't need to make money off of other people. He didn't need to make a great show of his religion. When he prayed, he went somewhere by himself most of the time. Because he loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind and strength. That is precisely what he gave to him by giving up his life at the cross. All Jesus is doing for us is obeying the greatest commandment, therefore covering the greatest sin. He's obeying God's law because we've disobeyed it. All of our sin is a disobedience of God's revealed word. Precisely, Jesus gave everything to God by giving up that life of perfect obedience as a sacrifice. We need the life of Jesus as much as we need His death. Thirty-three years of His perfect righteousness is more than enough to cover my who knows how many years of laughingly imperfect attempts at righteousness. And it is for this that David's son, beloved, is David's Lord and worthy of all the worship of heaven and earth for all eternity. The Bible literally tells us this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a therefore in Philippians that is amazing. Why is Jesus exalted above David, above everything? Because he did precisely what God requires from a human being. He's the only one who did it. You and I can never give this much. We literally don't have the currency. So you could give an offering of literally every cent in the world. Lay it in the plate. It will do nothing to achieve our salvation because God is not placated by deeds like the false gods we create. We create them that way because they're easy to please. And we get our assurance from ourselves. God takes away any inkling that we could feel assured by ourselves and our own work in the way He structures our salvation. 
We don't give what we have. We give what we don't. So we come to Him with our need and beg Him to take us. And with loving arms, He embraces us and brings us in. Redeemed. God accepts my righteousness because it isn't mine. It's that of His Son. And if I'm doing things that are Christ-like, it's because His Spirit lives in me, producing His fruit in me, not mine. The Holy Spirit does not take up residence in me to work with my flesh to create fruit that's acceptable to God. He takes over my flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit comes out, the first of which is love, all things I cannot produce in such a way that they will be pleasing to God. So it's not that we don't care about our works. It's that we need to realize how dependent we are on the move of the Holy Spirit for anything to be done that is glorifying to God. Right? I, I'm, I'm not going to preach messages that make it easy for you and I to think, oh, I'm in. I, I just, you know, I, I, I cross all the I's. I dot all the T's. When you say to do something, I do it. No, 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 no. I, I, I want to strip us bare of any sense of self. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And myself, so the text has to tear me up before it gets to you. Because this isn't self-deprecation. It's not a grounds for self-pity and feeling horrible all the time. Beloved, finally, the weight is lifted. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I'll take care of your forgiveness. I'll take care of your righteousness. Now that that's taken care of, you can go die. I'm everything you need. Go give your life away. If we move, if, if we go to Indonesia... If, if we go to Thailand, if we go to North Korea, if we go to the Sudan, we might get killed. Yeah. Yeah. Not to earn your salvation. Right? Beloved, you're owned and free and safe. This is a shell. Right? Because of the offering of Jesus. Because of the offering of Jesus. Because he loved God more than anyone or anything, Jesus Christ gave all that he had so that sinners who have nothing to offer God might gain everything through his salvation. Jesus has done all that God requires. Have faith in him. Unbelieving person, put your faith in Jesus Christ. If right now you feel in you if you know deep down inside that what I'm saying is true and you must come to Jesus, call out to Him. The flesh wouldn't do that. The Spirit is at work in you. He will be your salvation and He will not turn you away. His offering is greater than yours. Rest in it. Believer, believer, Jesus is Jesus for you and you need Him to be doing as much for you today as he was doing for you for 33 years, up until the moment he died, while he laid in the tomb, when God raised him from the dead. You and I will need Jesus more tomorrow than we need him today, and we need him today more than we needed him yesterday. Rest in Christ. Trust in him. Believe that he is your salvation. And we will serve him. 